Hi, everybody. Good to see you guys. And I'm going to introduce uh, to us uh, the guest speaker for today, um, Pastor Charles Kim. And uh, Thank you, Pastor Aiden. Good afternoon, CLC. It's always a pleasure to come here. We're going to be reading from Psalm chapter 137, verses 139. I'm going to read the whole thing. I know if, if you're some of you who are maybe familiar with the psalm, you're probably used to the last two or three verses being cut out. But we're, we're going to go through the whole thing because God's word is teachable. All aspects of God's word, not one iota, is unteachable. So some of you might be triggered. Let me just give you that warning. But nonetheless, let us give our attention to the reading of God's inspired and errant infallible word. Psalm 137, verses 1 through 9. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, on the willows, there we hung up our lyres, or lyres. For there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Amen. This is the reading of God's holy, infallible, and inspired merit word. Thanks be to God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father, I am so encouraged to see the saints of CLC here gathered. And I know that the end of the semester is near, and so I know many are probably worrying about finals, exams, projects, possibly lazy classmates who didn't do their part of the, their assignment and then have to worry about picking up the slack, or maybe they're the ones who are lazy and procrastinating. And so it's definitely a crazy time for many of the, of the members here. So I pray that you would give them much peace and grace to persevere, to stay up, and to manage the time wisely the next few days and weeks. Pray that they would finish the semester well and that they would not waste the opportunities that, that they have been given. At the same time, I pray that you would also remind them that their identity, that their worth is not in a degree, not in a major, not in a career, not in a GPA or a number or company, but as your son, your daughter. May that be clear, may that be their anchor as we sang earlier, that they are your son, your daughter, not because of their performance, but because of Christ perfect life and work on the cross. May that be their reminder as they press on the next few weeks and days. Would you continue to be with all the members here as, as it seems like it's finally warming up? Would we enjoy beautiful creation that only Minnesota summers can bring? And would you bless this time as we look at this somewhat controversial passage. Pray that our hearts, our souls, our minds will be humbled 
that we would not place ourselves or our own prejudices above your word, but that we would humble ourselves. That your word would speak to us, would comfort us, would challenge us, would renew us to live up, to live out our calling as your sons and daughters. Thank you and pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, this past week, while well, I noticed that many people are most likely following the, the Johnny Depp and the Amanda Heard trial, Elon Musk buying Twitter and all the, me- all the different memes that have ensued, probably many of you are familiar with that, and others are trying to even forget about all about Minnesota sports teams, and so if you're a Minnesota Vikings fan, sorry. If you're a Minnesota Timberwolves fan, even, even more sorry. If you're a Wild fan, you, you might have a chance, but again, Minnesota sports teams like seem to not disappoint in crashing and burning. So, but nonetheless, all of that was in the news. All of that was, but most of that was in my, at least my friend's social media accounts. But one thing that I noticed that was not covered as much, one thing that I noticed that most people didn't really talk about was the 30th anniversary of the LA uprisings from 1992. So April 29th, 1992, that was, that's the, that's when the LA uprisings began. So, and I'm, I realized that I think looking at looking at everyone, I think I think Pastor Aiden and I were the only ones alive when, when, when that happened, you know. But I feel old now. But but I remember just growing up in New York City, you know, the relationship between the the Asian American community and the African American community, it was still very tense, and it wasn't always a good relationship. Over the years, the relationship between the Asian American community and the African American community, in, at least in New York City, it started to get better. But 30 years afterwards, you know, talking to my friends there, I realized that it hasn't gotten that much better. Like it's better than it was 30 years, but not by that much. It's definitely not where most people would like that relationship to be. There is this huge gap between hope and reality. There is the significant gap between the promise and the hope of reconciliation and the reality of the present. And I'm sure if you have friends or family in LA, they could probably tell you the same thing about the African-American community and the Asian-American community there, that what happened 30 years ago is still has not fully healed in the hearts and in the the lives and the communities of both the Asian-American and the African-American community. And so the question is begged. What can we do? And how can we take the practical and necessary steps to make that gap between promise and reality smaller and smaller until it's gone? And not just on large-scale issues like societal racial reconciliation, but even on a smaller scale and even on a personal level. Right? We all experience that tension between promise and reality in some way. That gap between the promise of what was offered to you and what was promised to us from that political platform, from the political party, the political regime, versus reality. The gap between the promise of what was offered to you from your professors or employers and the expectations of what you thought your academic and or your professional career would be versus reality. The gap between the expectations of what you thought marriage would be if you're married versus 
the reality of what marriage is. The gap between what you thought Christianity would be. Maybe you had certain expectations, certain hopes that once you become a Christian, that certain things would happen in your life, and yet you're still waiting for those promises to be fulfilled by God, by Christ. And you're waiting, you're wondering why is the expectation, why is the promise, that distance between that, th those two things, why is that gap so big? Right, that tension between expectation, promise, versus reality. And dare I even say that gap between the promise of what will be offered to you as members of CLC. Right, what, people, what you might have heard that the PCA Right, what we as a presbytery, what we as a session, what we would do versus reality. Because I know that many, like we're going to have the congregational meeting today, and, may, and hopefully it will give all of you an opportunity to speak out, you know, and share any grievances that you might have. Because I, I know, right, as a member of the session, that I know that we haven't been, you know, we haven't been really great in, you know, being able to execute as well as we would have liked. You know, and the reason why I'm sharing from this psalm because I first had the opportunity to study this psalm in detail for a paper that I wrote in seminary. Now, out of the 150 psalms that are in the Bible, I decided to choose this one because of the last verse. I don't know why, but I just wanted to do it. And we're going to look at that verse in detail a little later, you know, but, and we, we, we are going to talk about it. We're, we're going to address that. But until then, I want to just share with you that little did I know that this psalm that I, that I studied and that I wrote a paper on over 10 years ago in seminary, that it would play a very crucial role in my life even today, as, and especially this season that my family and I, that we find ourselves in. And so I'm not in full-time vocational ministry anymore. I'm kind of bivocational right now. I'm a civil engineer and also a chaplain for the Minnesota Army National Guard. And so I'm wondering, okay, what is this going to be my life for the next 30 years, right? Am, am, I, am I done with church ministry, or is this just another season, you know? And in the midst of all this, right, and then my, and we're waiting for our third daughter to be born in, in the next few weeks, and so with all these different changes, I'm wondering, okay, like, where are you, God? Okay, why aren't you giving me any answers? Why, aren't, why isn't there any more clarity? Like, what, like, why is there such a gap between expectation and promise versus the reality? And I was able to meditate on this song. And so I thought it best to, if I'm going to preach, that I would preach a passage that, that actually is relevant to me at the time. And then also I realized that Pastor Aiden is going through a series through Ephesians with all of you. And he's going to be going through Ephesians 5 and 6 soon. And so I figured by if I come out swinging hard by using this passage, right, the, the controversy of verse 9, that once he does get into Ephesians 5 and 6, that it won't, that Ephesians 5 and 6 won't be as bad because we got, because we got this, right? So I'm kind of taking, taking one for the team for, for Pastor Aiden in, in, in some sense. So you, if you guys don't know what Ephesians 5 and 6 is, you guys, you guys will see. So hopefully this will be the more controversial passage. But nonetheless, as we get into the text, as we kind of look at this a little more in depth, I pray that your hearts and souls will be recalibrated according to the Holy Spirit. And as we're reminded that being in Christ enables us to not just react 
to the tension between promise and reality, but to respond. So being in Christ allows us to not just be passive observers and just to merely react and go with the flow, but to actually be able to be active participants and to respond accordingly. And so it's only because of Christ working in us and through us that we're able to carry out the three charges that I want to give to all of you today through this text. Number one, recognize our pilgrim condition. Number two, remember the promises of Christ. And thirdly, reconsider our personal criteria. So recognize our pilgrim condition, remember the promises of Christ, and then reconsider our personal criteria. So the first charge, right? recognize our pilgrim condition. And so the key to understanding our status, like what I mean by status is that we are pilgrims on this side of heaven meaning that we don't belong to this world anymore. Once we're in Christ, we're no longer of the world. We might be in the world, but we're no longer of the world. And the issue is not a lack of training or maturity. It's a, trans it's a foundational transformation that we need. And so we do not obtain this status. We do not become Christians just because we try harder than someone else than the person next to us or because we're smarter or because we're more wealthy or because we have more opportunities or because we're sexier or because we are able to dig deeper within ourselves than the other person or obtaining enough information and training to no longer be ignorant or immature. Rather, the key to understand and to recognize our, our pilgrim condition is outside of us. Right? It's not inside of us. We don't reach down and deep inside of us to find that status, to come to that realization. It comes outside of us from God, from above, the love and mercy of God. And when we read this psalm, right, by the waters of Babylon, right, there's clearly a deep sense of anguish that's arising from the depths of the psalmist's soul because, just to give you a historical context, right, the Israelites, they're in exile. And for those of you who might not be familiar with the, the history, I'm just going to give a, 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 just a really quick crash course. So kind of like what's going on here. So Israel, right, they were chosen by God to be the people through which other people from different nations would come to worship the true and living God. It wasn't because they were the biggest. It wasn't because they were the strongest, right? Even, you know, God in Deuteronomy 9 says that you're the smallest, you're the weakest, you're the most stubborn, you're the most frustrating group of people, and yet I chose you because it's not about you. Right? It's about God's glory. And so God chose the Israelites despite who they are. And so Israel was chosen by God to be his vessels of mercy. But instead of being faithful, instead of being obedient, right, God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, right, the crossing of the Red Sea, which is basically a preview of the greater exodus in Jesus Christ. Right? The Israelites cro uh, crossed the Red Sea from darkness to light in the same way, right, 1 Peter 2.9, that we as Christians in the new covenant, we cross over from death to life. And so the Israelites, they had everything. God redeemed them, he restored them, he gave them a new name, a new identity, and yet they continued to stay disobedient, disloyal, and rebelled against him. They ignored their calling, despite God constantly saving them over and over and over again. 
instead of being the ones to lead others to God and to shape the culture around them, right? Instead of being the thermostats, right, the common illustration, they were the thermometers. They were the ones who were influenced by the culture around them. And like any good parent who is torn by making the tough decision to properly discipline your children, God allowed the Babylonian Empire to conquer and take over the Israelites. Right? God was basically giving them what they wanted, right? Romans 1, 24 to 32. Right? So that is the greatest expression of God's wrath. Like if you want to know if God really hates you or not, it's it when God gives you everything that you want. Because if you read Romans 1, 24 to 32, it talks about how God gave them over to their lust. God gave them over to their desires. God gave them over to everything they had wanted. Right? That you think about the Israelites, you think right, they wanted meat. And so God's like, all right, you want meat? I'm going to give you so much meat that you're, the meat's going to come out of your nose. And Israel basically got what they wanted. They wanted to worship idols. They wanted to rebel against God. They wanted to do their own thing. So God's like, you want to do your own thing? You want to worship idols? All right. I'm going to let you be taken over by the Babylonian Empire. That's the center of idol worship. That's the epicenter, right? That's where it all begins. That's the main hub for idol worship, for doing, wanting to do your own thing. If that's what you want, there you go. Knock yourself out. And so many of them, many of the Israelites, they were taken from their homeland. They were sent to live in another land. And they could either completely assimilate or they could stand firm and they can maintain their distinctive as God's sons and daughters. They could either assimilate or stand firm. For those of us who are Asian American, this seems like a very similar experience to what most of us have gone through living in the States. Or maybe some of us are still going through right now. Right, growing up, I'm sure many of you can relate, you know, to, you know, I'm, I'm Korean American and so to the Korean community, I wasn't Korean enough. And then to the American community, I wasn't American enough. And so living in that tension between, right, not having a community, like a true community to really accept me, for me to be comfortable, for me to be myself. And so I struggled with my identity for the longest time until the Lord saved me in college. And I was finally able to be comfortable with who I am. Yeah, and still am today. And I know I'm going to I'm dealing with that even right now with my daughter, right? She's eight years old, going on nine, second grade. And so she's a third generation Korean American. And so she's going to have to deal with that. And she's dealing with that right now, right? Her identity as Korean or American. And this is the tension that the exiled Israelites find themselves in at the start of the song. They're not in their homeland, they're with a different group of people, different culture, different language. Do they assimilate or do they stand firm? By the waters of Babylon, in the same way that many are familiar with Psalm 23 today. Like you don't even have to be, I, you know, I'm, as an army, army chaplain, I, you know, there's a lot of non-Christians. And so I talk to them, and many of them, they know this Psalm 23. Right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He shall lead me by, green, you know, by the green pastures to the still waters. And so in the same way that non-Christians know Psalm 23 today, back then, Psalm 23 would have been very popular as well. And so when the, when the Israelites or when other people would hear by the waters, right, automatically Psalm 23 would have come to mind. And so if 
Psalm 23 would be like where David would write about how the Lord is his shepherd. The Lord would lead him. The Lord will guide him. The Lord will be with him every step of the way. But in this psalm, by the waters of Babylon, the author tells us that there's this body of water, but it isn't the still waters that God leads us to. Rather, the captors lead the people of God to an artificial, man-made, counterfeit water system. Because in the Babylonian Empire, there weren't any rivers, like apart from the Euphrates, but then in the capital city, right, the, the rivers were man-made channels, right, irrigation canals. And so it wasn't a real river that God created, but it was a man-made system that was implemented and people were okay with that. Right. It was the cutting-edge technology at the time, and people were okay with that. People enjoyed the technological advances that they had, even though it was fake, even though it was phony. Everything seemed fine, beautiful, and exquisite at the surface level. It seemed okay, like the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to Adam and Eve. But in the end, right, it was only a cheap, bootleg copy of the real thing. Many Israelites knew this, but yet they decided to accept this false reality as their new reality. Instead of enduring and persevering, keeping their eyes fixed on Zion and imagining the days when the Messiah would fully come and establish his kingdom, many of them settled for less and assimilated into the culture and life of their captors. They made Babylon their Zion and the commodities and the idols of the Babylon Empire, their Babylonian Empire, their messiahs. Instead of being God's ambassadors and the vessels of mercy through which the nations would come to know the true and living God, the fount of living water, the people of God settled for the broken cisterns of the world that cannot hold any water. Brothers and sisters, if we're honest with ourselves, I think we're just like the Israelites. We settle and we compromise like Adam and Eve did, like the Israelites did. That is, unfortunately, the natural disposition of our hearts, our souls, and minds that cannot be changed by behavior modification or by human will. And if we're going to recognize that, it's not because we're better or smarter or more mature than the person next to us. It's only by the grace of God. It's only because the grace of God is working in us to regenerate and to transform us. Christianity is not behavior modification. It's not going from a bad person to a good person, but a dead person to a person who is alive. It's a new and utter transformation. My hope and my prayer is that everyone here today, whether you're here in person, whether you're watching online on the live stream, that by the grace of God that you would recognize that this world you live in currently is not your true home. That the things of this world may satiate our desires for pleasure, for power, for popularity, and purpose for a moment, but not for eternity that we are pilgrims journeying through this side of heaven temporarily because our true home awaits us on the other side. 
that the promises of God are secured and guaranteed to us. Not because of our performances, not because of our abilities, or our capabilities or capacities or resumes and qualifications, but because of the person, life, and work of Jesus Christ. Right? That is why we sing. Not because God needs our praise, not because God needs our worship or adoration, or because he's, he's a glory hog, or because we're trying to feel better about ourselves after a bad day or a bad week but because we look to Christ and we're reminded that our status as God's sons and daughters is secure because Christ secured it for us through the cross and the resurrection. That he has covered not only our sin, but our shame, our guilt, our fears. That the problem is not us anymore. That he who knew no sin became sin so that we would be the righteousness of God. Right? That is why we sing. That is why we praise. Right? As we sang earlier, our hope, right? that hope of the gospel, the hope of the new reality, our new status as God's sons and daughters, that is never changing. That unconditional love, right? that is the anchor of our souls. And may that be the anchor of your souls in the midst of that tension that you find yourselves in wherever you may be, whether it's at school, whether it's in regard to your career, your relationships, even your faith. This leads, you know, to the second charge. Remember the promises of Christ. Right, verses four to six. And I want us to make sure that, right, even when, when we even when we think about praise, like praise and, and worship, it's not a petition, like for us to conjure up God, so that we can barter with him, manipulate him. Like, God, can you give me a better grade? Or God, can you get me into that company or, or to that school that I want to because I really want to increase my career or get me that girl, get me that boy, right? And get me that car. So it's, we don't do all of that. We don't psych ourselves up. We don't sing to manipulate or to get us in the mood to worship God or to finally listen to him or obey him, obey him right? But praise, it's, it's an overflow of what, we have experienced and what we already know and who we know. But the reality is that we will have seasons where we're in our valleys, where we're, we, it feels like we're, like we're all alone, where the Lord has left us, has abandoned us. We don't see him anywhere. We have those seasons. And if you're in that type of season right now, let me encourage you that the problem is not you. Right? It's normal. It's normal to have those seasons. You're not going to always grow, right? You're going to have, you know, you're going to have moments where you're going to drop off. Right? That's just the reality of life. That's the reality of us as, as humans. And during those seasons of life where we find, like, we're going to have those seasons where we're unable to sing. As we see in, in these verses where the psalmist, he's unwilling to sing the songs of God. Right? Partly because his captors are basically taunting him. He's like, Hey, like let me like let me hear those songs that you guys used to sing about. Let me hear about how awesome your God is, even though we're, we own you guys. It's like obviously he's not going to want to sing, right? Or he could have just acquiesced and he could have been like, you know what? All right, fine. You're, like, I'm your slave. You're my captor. You're my oppressor. So I'm gonna I'll, I'll sing. And yet what we see is that he's like, heck no, I am not going to sing. And so. 
in the midst of those seasons where even we find ourselves unable to sing, like where we do not feel like being a Christian that day, like we want to take a day off, or like, God, please forgive me, but I, I don't want to be here, right? I don't want to be a Christian today. Please forgive me, right? Or please understand, right? We don't, and in those moments, what these words, what these verses do is that it offers us hope, right, that we do not have to be passive observers even in those moments. We can still be active participants by looking to Christ because he is the word when we are wordless. When we cannot even sing, when we can't even pray, when we can't even bring ourselves to read scripture because of the season that we might find ourselves in. These verses are meant to be a reminder that life as a child of God is not meant to be without suffering and hardships. This doesn't mean that we intentionally go out and seek suffering or seek difficult people and persecution as a badge of authenticity that we're God's people. Right? I want to make sure you guys don't, don't misunderstand me on that. But nonetheless, suffering is the reality for all people, including Christians. Now bear with me for a moment because I'm going to be reading from a, a really kind of like passage in, in script that might be a little long, but this is to kind of Make, make the point a little more clear. So Jeremiah 29, 4-14. No, I won't read the whole thing, but I'm just going to kind of read from verses 7 to, to 10. Right, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for it. In it, its welfare, you will find your welfare. Right, like, let's pause there for a moment, right? It's like the Babylonians, they captured the Israelites. They did some pretty jacked up things when they did. And God is saying, seek the welfare of your captors because that will also be your welfare. Like, what? For thus says the Lord of hosts, God of Israel, do not let your, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I do not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Heart stop there again. God says, you're going to be in exile for 70 years. So don't expect this to be a weekend trip or vacation or just a temporary transplant, you know, for you to get work experience and then put it on your resume. Like, it's not going to be like that. 70 years. You're going to live there. You're probably going to die there. And you're probably going to have kids there. 70 years of being in exile. And so hunger down, because that's going to be your reality. And I'm sure, and as you can imagine, the Israelites, the people of God, they were probably wondering, what the heck? Like, why? Like, what, what about your promises that you're, you're always going to be with us? And yet, this is what God says. And there were people who would say, like, no, like, Jeremiah is wrong. Like, we're going we're gonna to be home in a year or less. And Jeremiah is saying, nope, 70 years. And the reason why I bring this up, because this is like very poignant, I know that many of you have heard that promise, like that verse, right, that verse 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope, right? For many of you, that's probably one of your promise verses. Maybe some of you have this tattooed somewhere on your body, or you have a, you have a plaque of it somewhere hanging in your house, or maybe you have it like as, saved as a verse on your desktop to remind you that the Lord wants to prosper you, which he does. But remember, 
that verse 10 comes before verse 11. So the plans that the Lord has for God's people involves being in exile for 70 years. And so some of you are probably like, you know what? Maybe I want to second guess this Christian thing, right? Because the plans that the Lord has involves exile, right? Thankfully, not for us, but at, at least in this moment in history, that was a reality for God's people. Right? It was completely out of their control. They could not do anything. And so obviously the, the natural tendency and reaction for us is, uh, you know what, screw it. There's no hope. I'm just going to live my life, do whatever I want, right? That just it's depression, denialism, or existentialism, where you just live your life, do whatever you want. This life, the, the present is all you know, right? And so, and so what God does is in those moments where you feel like you have no hope is he offers us these words because when we are unable to speak in prayer or in song because of the grief or the tragedy or the trauma that we're going through, when we are silent, when we can't speak into the darkness or the abyss in which we find ourselves in, right, God provides us the words. Right, even on the cross, we see in Christ that death, darkness, did not have the final say. That Christ even conquered the silence. Christ conquered the darkness. Christ conquered death. And so in Christ, we are able to speak into the abyss, to the darkness in which we find ourselves in. We're able to basically protest in the face of tension and opposition, right? The people of God expressing their desire to not acquiesce to the requests of their tormentors like performance monkeys, but to speak God's words back in the face of our enemies. And this is, I really want to challenge you, like if you find yourselves in this position, for those of you who are here, because you know, Thomas Watson, one of my favorite Puritan authors, he says that prayer composes the heart and puts it in tune when impatience has broken the strings and put everything into confusion. And so if you're in a season where you are not able to pray, where you basically feel like the psalmist, who he's basically saying that he feels paralyzed, that he refuses to sing the songs of God in response to the request of his tormentor, he will not do that in defiance of his enemy, that he will not do that, that he is able to, and so God provides us the words to just, if you, if, again, if you can't bring yourselves to even pray or to sing songs to God or, or pray to God, right, that's what the lament psalms are here for, right, the psalms, 40 percent, Many of us, we think that the Psalms are a book to, like, to cheer us up or to get us happy when we're down. 40% of the Psalms are basically laments. And so God gives us the words. He gives us the language to speak to him in those moments. Right? God, you know, God knew what he was doing. Right? The psalmists, they, the authors, they knew what they were doing because they know that the human experience is not all peaches and cream. That there are moments and seasons of darkness that we need to get through. And so he provides us the words to speak. And so there may be different reasons for why even we're not able to sing if we find ourselves in, the, in those seasons. And this is why prayer is so crucial to the life of the Christian because right, 
prayer composes the heart. It puts it in tune. And when we are used to, so again, I might have shared this before, I'm not sure, but there's two types of prayers that we need to be really familiar with as Christians. Right? Prayers of repentance, which I'm sure everyone here probably knows about. Right? Repentance are you know, prayers that we lift up to the Lord when we confess the sins that we commit, right? that, we are, that we're the ones who are at fault. Right? There are some days and moments right, where we may feel like the Lord is really far, far away because of our sin. You know, just to just kind of be vulnerable with you guys. So this past week, I got into this, I was just, it was a really bad week, you know, for my wife and I, and, and I'll admit, it's because of me. It was, it was so stupid, right? It was so really, it was really petty. And so we're fighting over the name of our, our third daughter. And so, and so I want to name her Anastasia or, you know, or Eleonora or, you know, then my wife is saying like no like Haley or like you know all the, I think like they're goofy names you know but I'm like no like I'm like I you know like she's like she got the chance she named the, you know, she got the Korean name I'm like you got the Korean name why can't I do the English name I'm like it's not fair and then she's like I don't like Anastasia I don't like I don't like Eleanor I'm like yeah but Nora you know like I try to convince her like the you know how cute it is but again she wouldn't listen and so I'm like all right you know what forget it. You know, so we'll just, I'm just let's just keep her. Let, let's make her English name her Korean name, and let's just be done with that. Because I'm only going to call her by her Korean name, right? And so I decided, you know, I'm just going to be petty. You know, and it wasn't just bad because because of just that relationship between my wife and I, but it was bad because I could sense right, that that there was this there's something blocked. You know, I'm not trying to be over, overly spiritually, but I could sense that there was something blocking me between you know, between God and I. Yeah, that it wasn't, and so it was my sin, my pettiness, my ego, my pride that prevented me from being able to connect with the Lord. And so sometimes there will be, we need to be used to those prayers of repentance. And I repented to the Lord, but I still need to repent to my wife. And so please pray for me that I'll be able to do that. You know, but but we need, you know, we need to be comfortable with those like that prayer of repentance, right? John Bunyan, the author of the Pilgrim's Progress, another Puritan, he said, prayer will make a man cease from sin or, or sin will entice a man to cease from prayer, which is exactly you know, what I felt. And then secondly, which, you know, prayers of lament, which are not as popular. Maybe some of you aren't familiar with that because we haven't really taught it in churches. Because if we're honest, like the American church is all about prosperity, happiness, quick fix. Who has time to lament? Who wants to lament? Who wants to get involved in the mess of other people's lives? And yet, that is what we're called to do as Christians. And so repentance are prayers that we confess the sins that we commit, whereas lament our prayers that we confess the sins committed against us and others, where we're not in control, like we didn't commit them, but we still confess. We still speak words, even though we're not directly responsible, even though we are, we're sinned against or sins were committed against us, atrocities, tragedies, traumas. Right? Maybe 
You're here today, you can't sing because you've been sinned against. And maybe you feel paralyzed from tragedy or trauma or abuse. This is where the prayers of lament come in. And prayers of repentance are for when we commit the sins and repentance, I'm sure you've heard this a thousand times, but I'm going to say it again anyway. Like repentance in the Hebrew at least, it's not about like a, saying a prayer and then you getting a cathartic experience and you feeling good about yourselves and then you say, okay, I repented, I feel good, I did my, I did my retreat prayer style and then, I'm, and then I'm good with the Lord. It's like, no. Repentance literally means to turn. Are you turned to the Lord or are you turned away from the Lord? Like, it's your posture. So repentance is not an action, but it's a posture. So prayers of repentance are not just It's not just a ritual that you guys can say and just get away with, but it's a posture. Are you turned to the Lord or are you turned away from the Lord? And this leads us to the the final charge. I know I'm kind of getting a little over, but I'll try to land a plane quickly here. So verses 7 to 9, that's where we we see the, the controversial passages. And so... When we're confronted with like difficult passages like this, it can be easy for us to kind of try to explain it away very superficially, like, oh, like, you know, and a lot of theologians, a lot of Christians in the past, they've tried to say, oh, like, we're not supposed to take this literally. This is just meant to be taken figuratively. So they try to find ways to kind of soften the blow a little bit. You know, many have tried to say that we shouldn't even read these verses or sing these verses because it's not appropriate anymore for us to sing or to say these types of songs or, or prayers. And some have even taken these verses to make an argument to support or deny the right to abortion, which I'm not going to do, which because I don't think that does that. But the psalmist is crying out for justice, not regarding a personal or individualistic justice, but a corporate injustice committed against God and his people. Not some cheap, sentimental understanding of justice, but a justice that is rooted in wanting to see God's will be done. And so the question, some of you might be thinking, okay, then, is it okay for us to say these verses or to pray these words? The short answer is yes. It's in the Bible, right? And all scripture is God-breathed and is used for teaching, for rebuking, for training up the person of God in all, thing, all matters of righteousness. So yes, we can say these prayers, say these words, but they're not meant to be used to try to, if, we're, if we've been sinned against and we want vengeance, we want justice, it's not, the psalmist is saying these words in the context of God's corporate justice, not our own personal justice. That may be hard for us to accept, right? but that's the reality here. And when we're confronted with difficult passages, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you to not let, to try to fit these verses or other verses that may be controversial within our own personal narratives or our own perceptions of what we think Christianity is about. Rather, may we humble ourselves to the word of God, to Christ, in response to what he has already done to us through the cross, through the resurrection, that we are no longer slaves to sin, 
that we are no longer have dead hearts, but that we have hearts of flesh that have been given to us, but we are new creations. And in response to the fact that we are God's sons and daughters, and that will never, ever change, because that was accomplished according to Christ and his performance, may we respond, may we recognize that this is not our true home anymore. That may our hope be in Christ, may our hope be in the world to come. May we persevere and press on in this tension, not because we're trying to get a reward, but because we already have the reward. There might be, right, that there's, there's going to be that gap between te- like, you know, that expectation and promise versus reality. You look at the world right now. I mean, I look at my life right now, and it's like, where is God sometimes? And it's in these moments, brothers and sisters, where we need to look to Christ even harder. And we do so, and we're able to do so, and not because we're trying to find that second gear in ourselves or our our own abilities, but because Christ has already established us, Christ has already begun to work in us, Christ is working in us, through us, amongst us, amidst us, Christ is building upon the work that he has already started. So I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, to do so, that Christ has enabled us to stand firm in the face of this tension that we find ourselves in personally, as a church, as a society, that Christ establishes us, Christ continues to build upon that foundation that he has built and he is continuing to build. And so brothers, let us recognize our pilgrim condition Let us remember the promises of Christ and let us reconsider our personal criteria. Let us not allow our preferences, our biases to shape God or to shape our faith according to our image or our perception of what we think God is supposed to be like. Because if we think to ourselves, my God would never do that, right? That's probably a a good sign that you're probably making God into your own image. Let us humble ourselves so that God can continue to work in us and shape us according to the image of Christ and not shape God according to our image. So brothers and sisters, let us, as we sang earlier, let us look to Christ. Let us use and let us hold on to him and let us be, be assured and be comforted in knowing that he is our anchor in times of tension, in times of uncertainty, in times of trauma, in times of tragedy. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that we are your sons and daughters, not because of anything that we can ever do or say or think, but because of everything that Christ has done and everything that he is continuing to do, even right now as he is seated on the throne at your right hand, as our high priest interceding on our behalf and praying praying and singing over us. 
in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of the tension between expectation versus reality, it can be easy for us to lose hope, to be disheartened. It can be easy for us to, to lose the, the motivation, to lose the desire to press on forth. And it is in those moments that where I pray that you would be even more noticeable to my brothers and sisters, to me, that your promises, your presence would be even more real and influential and impact to us. And so I pray we will continue to pursue, to press on, not because we are trying to get a reward, not because we're trying to gain the prize, but because we already have the prize and we're responding in faith, we're responding in boldness and confidence in knowing that our status, our place in your family and in the new heavens and earth is secure, not because of our performance, not because of our righteousness, but because of the performance and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Thank you. I pray all these things in my name of Jesus. Amen. Like Pastor Charles mentioned, that um, you know, we are living in tension. Um, some people call it um, already, but not yet. You know, Jesus already died and rose again for us, and yet um, you know, he's coming back um, not now. Uh, it can be any time, but it's in the future. So we are caught in between. There is the promise, and but in reality, there is um, pain and dissatisfaction. Um, you feel torn. But I think the virtue that um, people, especially uh, Christians, may have forgotten um, in recent times is the the virtue and practice of waiting, waiting on God. And I think that's been really on my heart um, in the past several years uh, or maybe decades. Um, I remember the word um, instant gratification uh, became popular back when uh, we came out uh, when I was in high school. Um, and um, I think from there on, you know, technology got better and better so that um, it made it seem like a norm that we have to get what we want and fix our problems right now. Uh, but the truth is that our lives are supposed to be broken right now. Things are not supposed to work out the way we hope to because we're caught in the tension. So perhaps the Lord is teaching uh, the church, the teaching uh, his people um, to learn and grow in the, the beauty even of waiting on him. And I really appreciated what Pastor Charles said that um, because our end is written, um, because there's a reality of Jesus Christ uh, his death and resurrection, you know, we can hope. So we don't have to react to uh, 
um, you know, the abnormalities of our lives and this world, but we can respond in hope and confidence, trusting that uh, He is for us, not against us. So could we pray right now um, as we think about how uh, this word can be applied to our lives? I'm sure many of us are, if not all of us, are going through uh, different struggles. Uh, again, because we are caught in the tension, because you know, our lives are supposed to be broken right now in this world, um, you know, what would that be for you? Again, some of us are going through the finals right now. Some of us are going through this daily grind of um, you know, just, uh, overwork and uh, projects and uh, co-workers and all these things. Um, and there, maybe there's other relational struggles or family issues. Uh, whatever that might be, um, let's pray. Let's bring them to God uh, who has rewritten our narratives so that you know, our end is bright future, bright hope because of what Jesus has done for us. And let's ask God uh, to change our hearts uh, more than changing the circumstances so that uh, we'll become people that He wants us to become, waiting on Him, trusting on Him, no matter what situation we might be in. Let's pray together. Let's just uh, grab onto God uh, and ask Him um, to touch us the way only He can. Then I'll um, close for us and uh, let's, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for reminding us um, of uh, the story that You have written for us um, in which we can live and enjoy and um, have hope. Lord, uh, we come before you with uh, just so much um, of um, going from stress, frustration, and even pain. Um, but thank you that you know each one of our stories uh, and you still love us. I pray that you would um, just touch our hearts right now uh, so that we'll uh, stop resisting um, your calling uh, on us to draw us near to you. Um, but it is the reality many times that we try to fix our problems. So we need your touch. We need your Holy Spirit's um, tugging at our hearts. You are the only one uh, that can uh, keep us from falling. God, we trust in you. You are the only one uh, who we can have our hope on. So, Lord, um, may you um, lead us uh, through the desert. May you help us uh, to grow in waiting on you because we trust in your character, uh, not uh, how we feel about you or about our lives. But thank you that we have an anchor in Jesus Christ uh, who uh, died and rose again. So we look back as we look forward in hope. Help us, God. Lead us. Lead us, Lord.